Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Democrat, duly elected representative from California and for We the People. This week on the Janice Adams Show, impeachment, the opening round, a special edition. First, the news. Trying to make it real compared to what... Welcome to this special edition of the Janice Adams Show, Impeachment, the opening round. Why this special episode? Because in 1973, as a young public radio host, producer, and soon-to-be NPR correspondent, I actually co-anchored the Watergate hearings in the Senate and then the Nixon impeachment trial in the House. So with me in studio, all of these historic years later, is WJFF Program Director Jason Dole. Hi, Jace. Hey, Janice. Well, Jace, were you even born when the Nixon impeachment was the news of the day? No, I I was not, (laughs) and I guess I'll go ahead and say I was negative five. You were negative five. I won't say how much I was plus, but (laughs) so this is really our intergenerational look at the impeach, impeachment then and now. What are some of your impressions? What are you thinking about the hearings right now? The, the ones, the contemporary ones? The impeachment ones? inquiry yeah. hearings going on right now. I, I feel in some ways a sense of almost inevitability that something was going to happen to Leah's here just because I've been paying attention to what's been going on mm-hmm. even before the 2016 election. And there was already some very suspect uh, things that we knew about even before the major investigations. And now... Um, it's here we are. So there's a bit of a sense of inevitability. There's also this overriding sense of futility, given the divisive nature of the country mm-hmm. and, uh, of course, the nature of the, the coverage in the media. So there's a bit of a sense of inevitability, a bit of a sense of futility. Uh, and I guess along with those is a mix of uh, anxiousness, which I guess is just in the air and water anymore these yeah. days. Anxiousness for the country and also a little bit of hope. You know, a little bit of uh, uh, anticipation, but, you know, mm-hmm. not too much. You're guarded on that front, <laughs> you know. And hope for what? Hope for things to work out well for the country, like wh- whatever whatever happens, you know. And mm-hmm. it's, it's not purely like, hey, I just hope they get rid of this guy. It's like, I hope we start making sense. I hope that reason and facts uh, win the day, whatever the facts are. And Mm -hmm. I think even just watching the initial hearings, that was a breath of fresh air. Like there's shenanigans going on that are as frustrating as anything that's been going on. And it's primarily coming from the GOP side of the aisle. But in terms of the witnesses, you're you're seeing some of the professionalism, some of the the storied almost like stoicism of the bureaucracy you know Mm -hmm. what some people have called the deep state and which i honestly would analyze and say the state (laughs) it's just and and matters of state in this case international affairs which are very complicated yes and to see that this is a a seasoned group of professionals beyond um the the you know razzle dazzle that we get by with by electing certain officials, this is the salt of the earth core that actually really does keep the country running. Salt of the earth, feet on the ground. Yes, you know, and yes. and in some case, in these cases with Mr. Taylor, mm-hmm. you know, he he's been Ambassador on the ground Taylor. for a long time. You yeah. know, he was on the ground when he was in the service. He was you know? literally on yeah, the ground. Yeah, he was literally on the ground. And yeah. uh, what they're talking about it, with some of this information that even as his. Uh, 
uh, one of the people that work under him is overhearing a phone call with the president of the United States on a cell phone in a restaurant in the Ukraine. He was in the part of the Ukraine where they're actually facing off against the Russians, where people have been dying for the last where few years. Where there's a war going there's on. There's a war going on. And I think that's another thing that's really kind of come out, both in the initial hearings and when the mm -hmm. transcripts started coming out of the closed doors hearings, the redacted transcripts. You start to get more of a sense of what's at stake in terms of international diplomacy and what's ex in, at stake for our country and for the Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. Well, f you know, for me, then in in 73 through 76 as now, um, one of my biggest frustrations is that the things for which in in this case, especially Trump is particularly guilty his human rights violations, because we are reliant on a constitution that was written in a period when human rights violations were the norm, yeah. they were the everyday affair, then there are no grounds for what the egregious things he's been doing all along. That troubles me immensely. And I would say as, uh, as the documents and the treaties of the day at the time of the founding in the early days of the country did in fact cover up so many atrocities yeah. in the name of civilization and gentlemanliness, I think another <laughs> thing that's descended from that is how many uh, actual items of functioning of government, functioning of the administering of the country and mm -hmm. of the government uh, are based on just a gentlemanly sense of well, we don't need to make a law about that because who would do that? Who, who would, would do such who, a thing? Who would you know, do that? This gentleman's agreements uh, that exactly. have piled up over the years as just, well, this is tradition. This is how things are. Well, you know, a good chunk of the country sent somebody to the White House to blow up traditions and shake things up and tear things down. So, As we get into this conversation, the other thing that um, I feel needs to be underscored seriously is the difference between then and now being that pretty much the Democratic Party of today was the Republican Party of that day and vice versa. So that when we are talking about um, Nixon as being a Republican, he was part of the party that was by no means progressive, but at least supported the movement towards human rights and women's rights, as opposed to the lead star person for the Democratic Party, which is more akin to today's Republican Party, was the arch segregationist Sam Irvin, who loved to portray himself as just a little country yeah. lawyer, um, but who was lethal. He was absolutely to his dying day a racist segregationist to his core who did everything to thwart human rights at, at its very basic. In my limited understanding of history mm -hmm. and politics, I would say along those lines of what you're talking about, that Nixon himself, his administration, him, his person, and his Southern strategy represents the hinge at which these two parties' identities swiveled like there's there's like a there was a generational shift but mm -hmm. he's at the pivot point he, where that really he is he is that strategy really does begin with goldwater who makes it's it's uh goldwater's election that really or not election because he did not win but when he's yeah. running that's what makes the shift um and the whole issue of uh, of I mean, you know, it's even interesting when I think about it because my family, being a northern family, like so many other nor northern families, we were registered Republicans. And the reason for that was because it was considered by blacks in the north um, that we were counterbalancing the, the strength of the Democratic Party, which was so racist. So let me ask you where where you were in 1973, mentally and, and emotionally, and regarding uh, coming out of the the 50s and 60s civil rights era. Now you're in the mm -hmm. 70s, and this is this is what's going on. How did you approach that impeachment then, given uh, what you're talking about here? It's interesting because I am. A newly formed adult at that point, right? You know, um, a newly minted adult, <laughs> and um, and so and I've 
I've come through the civil rights era, but as a child, really, um, from the age of eight, I was part of the movement. So I'm coming through that. And then the women's movement has given another spoke to this human rights wheel. And we're pushing on all cylinders um, at that point. And we're getting a lot of pushback and a lot. But at the same point, it's, it, it is a fact. You know, Dr. King did pay for our sins with his life you know, the sins of this country. So 68, so much changes in 68. It really does. And people are, who were so vociferous in their opposition um, are pushed a little bit to the side by people who no longer want the country to be portrayed this way. They, They are looking at taking the long view of what is the United States internationally. People are saying, oh no, we can't have people thinking that way of us, even though we are like that, but we can't have people thinking that way is about there a the United bit, States. Is there, and is there also a little bit of like, well, look at what they did to King. I'm not taking this anymore. Well, yeah, there's a lot of that, but people were, the I'm not taking this anymore is, you know, was going on, right. you know, Building. For, for the, was, was part of the movement all along. You know, the civil rights movement, which was always a human rights movement. Um, so that's been been a steady thrust. The number of people who were l- being literally lynched at that period of time. So people are putting their lives on the line. The people who are fighting for change are. The people who are not, really, it doesn't cost them much. And that brings us to 1973. Where was I? And where were you when? Well, I was a producer at WFCR in Amherst, Massachusetts. Um, At that point, FCR was the strong station in in the area. It was a six, it had a six station listening um, listenership. And it, it was kind of dominating for a then fledgling NPR. In fact, at that point, I would say to people, yes, I, you know, the station is part of NPR, and they'd say, what? And you'd have to say, well, it's the radio end of, of PBS. And then they... <laughs> And then they kind of got it. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so that's that's what it was. And at that point, I was really pioneering issue-oriented women's programming with a show called The World of Women. For my 100th show, I interviewed a woman named Helen Gahagan Douglas. She was a California politician who had the lack of privilege to go up against Nixon. During the campaign, they had a debate. She had on a pink dress, and he conflated that. This is in the 50s, so this is the McCarthy era where the Red Scare and all of that is going on. And he conflates her pink dress into calling her a pinko, and she becomes, you know, inferring that she's a pinko, meaning subversive to the United States and all of that by calling her, and she became known as the Pink Lady. When the Nixon, Nixon's enemies list was published, when that came out that he actually had a list of people on his kill list to smear, New York and the New England states had more people on the Nixon enemies list than any other region in the country. For that reason, and the fact that I had just done this show with Hel- Helen Gahagan Douglas, I began the co-anchoring of the Watergate hearings, which were actually in the Senate, then the Nixon impeachment um, hearings that that were really in not so much hearings in the House, what they were. And, and this is being deliberately conflated as people talk about, oh, we're not using the rules from last time and when Nixon, well, there was a very good reason. It's because this Watergate break-in, what Nixon and his troops were terming a third-rate burglary and being very dismissive of, gradually things became known and a little bit more known and a little bit more known until 
it became a Senate inquiry. Then, as things began to really ratchet up, and we'll talk more about that. I have, a, I have some clips from that for people to hear. Um, it then later on comes to the House where they actually start talking about impeachment and they have, they put together the articles of impeachment, but it was based on the hearing that had taken place in the Senate. Hmm. So do you remember how you felt at the outset as we're looking at the outset of the contemporary uh, impeachment hearings going uh, public, the impeachment inquiry hearings? Um, I can't say I absolutely remember how I felt, but I can say, you know, how I think I felt, which is that if it happened to Nixon, it couldn't have happened to a better person. (laughs) So I just want to give a little bit of a background as to how all of this comes to be. On, and, and this is from a unique perspective. You asked how I felt, and, you know, we on this show we refer to it being a show about race and courage. And one of the things people don't realize is that race had a lot to do in a way that one not, might not expect with the Watergate hearings. On June 17, 1972, an African-American security guard, Frank Wills, detected a break-in at a Washington, D.C. office building and, out of devotion to his job and the truth, apprehended five burglars, brought in the police, and brought down, ultimately, the President of the United States. As the facts of the case unraveled in the two years after Frank Wills uncovered the Watergate break-in, the trail of deceit led to the Oval Office and to the seat reserved for President Richard Nixon. And this is where it gets eerily familiar. Wills should have been a hero as the man whose on-the-job performance led to the disclosure of a serious breach of executive power and one of the nation's most historic events, Will should have been lauded as a symbol of the quintessential, quote, common man. And I want to underscore that I'm reading something I wrote in 1995. So any allusions to the present were not known at that time. Instead of being honored, um, Wills suffered the fate of all too many whistleblowers, a fate compounded in his case by racism. And instead of being given a hero's reward, he went from being considered untrustworthy to being shunned, being blamed for the national shame, sounds very familiar, and sometimes being the victim of outright harassment. Finally, in 1974, Wills was officially honored in a celebration led by Dr. Ralph David Abernathy, and he is known as the partner and successor to Dr. King. Um, And were it not for Wills' work, Nixon's plumbers, secret police, enemies list, and other direct attempts to subvert the democratic process might never have come to light. With that, I think you hear what is going on right now in terms of outing the whistleblower and the approach to the way today's whistleblower is being treated. Yeah. When we come back, more on this special edition of the Janice Adams Show, Impeachment, after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what? Trying to make it real compared to what? Hi, I'm Janice Adams, and welcome back to the show. On this special edition of the Janice Adams Show, we are dealing with the impeachment, this first round of the impeachment. The clip that you're about to hear is of Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Democrat, duly elected representative from California, and for We the People. He is introducing this opening session of the public impeachment inquiry into the behavior of Donald J. Trump. Committee will come to order. Good morning, everyone. This is the first in a series of public hearings the committee will be holding as part of the House's impeachment inquiry. Here's how the committee will proceed for this hearing. 
I will make an opening statement, and then Ranking Member Nunes will have the opportunity to make a statement. Then we will go to witness statements and then to questions. For audience members, we welcome you, and we respect your interest in being here. In turn, we expect and will uh, insist on decorum in the committee. As chairman, I will take all necessary and appropriate steps to maintain order and ensure the committee is run in accordance with House Rules and House Resolution 660. With that, I now recognize myself to give an opening statement in the impeachment inquiry into Donald J. Trump, the 45th President of the United States. In 2014, Russia invaded the United States ally, Ukraine, to reverse that nation's embrace of the West and to fulfill Vladimir Putin's desire to rebuild a Russian empire. In the following years, 14,000 Ukrainians died as they battled superior Russian forces. Earlier this year, Vladimir Zelensky was elected president of Ukraine on a platform of ending the conflict and tackling corruption. He was a newcomer to politics and immediately sought to establish a relationship with Ukraine's most powerful patron, the United States. The questions presented by this impeachment inquiry are whether President Trump sought to exploit that ally's vulnerability and invite Ukraine's interference in our elections, whether President Trump sought to condition official acts, such as a White House meeting or U.S. military assistance, on Ukraine's willingness to assist with two political investigations that would help his re-election campaign. And if President Trump did either, whether such an abuse of his power is compatible with the office of the presidency. The matter is as simple and as terrible as that. Our answer to these questions will affect not only the future of this presidency, but the future of the presidency itself, and what kind of conduct or misconduct the American people may come to expect from their commander-in-chief. The facts in the present inquiry are not seriously contested. Beginning in January of this year, the President's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, pressed Ukrainian authorities to investigate Burisma, the country's largest national gas producer, and the Bidens, since Vice President Joe Biden was seen as a strong potential challenger to Trump. Giuliani also promoted a debunked conspiracy that it was Ukraine, not Russia, that hacked the 2016 U.S. election. The nation's intelligence agencies have stated unequivocally that it was Russia, not Ukraine, that interfered in our election. But Giuliani believed this conspiracy theory, referred to as CrowdStrike, shorthand for the company that discovered the Russian hack, would aid his client's re-election. Giuliani also conducted a smear campaign against the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. On April 29, a senior State Department official told her that although she had done nothing wrong, President Trump had lost confidence in her. With the sidelining of Yovanovitch, the stage was set for the establishment of an irregular channel in which Giuliani and later others, including Gordon Sondland, an influential donor to the President's inauguration, now serving as ambassador to the European Union, could advance the President's personal and political interests. Although we have learned a great deal about these events in the last several weeks, there are still missing pieces. The President has instructed the State Department and other agencies to ignore congressional subpoenas for documents. He has instructed witnesses to defy subpoenas and refuse to appear. And he has suggested that those who do expose wrongdoing should be treated like traitors and spies. These actions will force Congress to consider, as it did with President Nixon, whether Trump's obstruction of the constitutional duties of Congress constitute additional grounds for impeachment. If the President can simply refuse all oversight, particularly in the context of an impeachment proceeding, the balance of power between our two branches of government will be irrevocably altered. That is not what the founders intended. And the prospects for further corruption and abuse of power in this administration or any other will be exponentially increased. Benjamin Franklin was asked what kind of a country America was to become. A republic, he answered, if you can keep it. The fundamental issue raised by the impeachment inquiry into Donald J. Trump is, can we keep it? I now recognize Ranking Member Nunes for any remarks he may wish to make.
Thanks, gentlemen. In a July open hearing of this committee following publication of the Mueller report, the Democrats engaged in a last-ditch effort to convince the American people that President Trump is a Russian agent. That hearing was the pitiful finale of a three-year-long operation by the Democrats, the corrupt media, and partisan bureaucrats to overturn the results of the 2016 election. After the spectacular implosion of their Russia hoax on July 24th, in which they spent years denouncing any Republican who ever shook hands with a Russian, on July 25th, they turned on a dime and now claim the real malfeasance is Republicans' dealings with Ukraine. In the blink of an eye, we're asked to simply forget about Democrats on this committee, falsely claiming they had more than circumstantial evidence of collusion between President Trump and Russians. We should forget about them reading fabrications of Trump-Russia collusion from the Steele dossier into the congressional record. We should also forget about them trying to obtain nude pictures of Trump from Russian pranksters who pretended to be Ukrainian officials. We should forget about them leaking a false story to CNN while he was still testifying to our committee claiming that Donald Trump Jr. was colluding with WikiLeaks. And forget about countless other deceptions, large and small, that make them the last people on earth with the credibility to hurl more preposterous accusations at their political opponents. And yet now, here we are. We're supposed to take these people at face value when they trot out a new batch of allegations. But anyone familiar with the Democrats' scorched earth war against President Trump would not be surprised to see all the typical signs that this is a carefully orchestrated media smear campaign. For example, after vowing publicly that impeachment requires bipartisan support, Democrats are pushing impeachment forward without the backing of a single Republican. The witnesses deemed suitable for television by the Democrats were put through a closed-door audition process in a cult-like atmosphere in the basement of the Capitol, where Dem Democrats conducted secret depositions, released a flood of misleading and one-sided leaks, and later selectively release transcripts in a highly staged manner. With me in studio is WJFF Program Director Jason Dole, and we started this conversation earlier by saying that this was our intergenerational conversation on the impeachment because I did co-anchor the Watergate hearings of 1973 through 75. And I, I, what I'm hearing is from anybody who does remember what was happening 45 plus years ago mm -hmm. is everybody's thinking of that. Every, you know, those of us who weren't there kind of might be wondering about that history, but anybody that was, that's automatically what they're thinking about. So I think it's great to be able to do this. We just heard the recent history of where we are in this moment and history being made uh, in the Capitol. Uh, but now we can say, okay, well, what was it like when it was happening back in 73? Exactly. So let's take a look back to May 17th, 1973, where it's the Senate Watergate hearings, um, and that's important because the Senate is the one at that point who did the investigation. It was it was coming out of all these rumors, and the cover-ups were were in full force. But gradually, the cover-up began to unravel, and things the courts realized in in prosecuting the Nixon. The, the break the Watergate break in so-called plumbers um, that there was a little bit more to the story than just five derelict guys you know breaking into the Democratic National Headquarters so everything that's old leaks afresh again 
<laughs> yes, indeed. History drips all over the place. Oh, my God. Drip, drip, drip. The co-chairs of that hearing in 1973 were Senator Sam Irvin, Democrat of North Carolina, and Howard Baker, Republican of Tennessee. And as I mentioned earlier, it is important to remember that at that point, um, even though it was a Republican president with Republican supporters, so it sounds as though it's akin, it really isn't on some other levels because the more, not quite progressive, but the, the more, the, the, the party that was more moving in the right direction, I'll put it that way, was the Republican Party and the party that was the more conservative party, at least in the South, was the Democratic Party. So here we have May 17th, 1973, opening the hearings, Senator Sam Irvin, Democrat of North Carolina. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17th break-in strike at the very undergirding of our democracy. If the many allegations made to this day are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable their most precious heritage, the right to vote in a free election. You know, one of the reasons we actually have this this complete archive of Senate Watergate hearings, the audio and the video, is because of PBS, public broadcasting, broadcast all 250 hours of the hearings, gavel and to gavel. Of course, this is before uh, there was cable, and the cable companies banded together to create C-SPAN, so this makes sense. PBS was doing that work for the public good. PBS was doing that work, still is, <laughs> for the public good. Um, coming up, Howard Baker. It is his opening statement as a Republican representative on the committee. We will inquire into every fact and follow every lead unrestrained by any fear of where that lead might ultimately take us. Making the point that this is an investigatory hearing for the Senate, here's a witness who is explaining what actually took place from the criminal standpoint at the Watergate break-in site. After the call went out, we responded from the area of 30th and K down to the front of the Watergate on one of the doors leading from the B-1 level, where the door would shut, and from all appearances, the door would be locked. So this tape was on the edge of the door. Yes, uh, sir. Forcing back the lock that would ordinarily spring and lock the door. Yes, sir. Senator Baker, May 18, 1973. If you were concerned because the action was known to you to be illegal, because you thought it improper or unethical, that you thought the prospects for success were very meager, and you doubted the reliability of Mr. Liddy, what on earth would it have taken to decide against that plan? Those who watch CNN on a regular basis are very much familiar with John Dean today, but on June 25th, 1973, John Dean was a disgraced White House counsel at the table who had his own come-to-Jesus moment as he confessed what he had done in terms of the Watergate cover-up and went on from there. The fact that I was involved in obstruction of justice, the fact that I assisted another in perjured testimony, it's far easier to talk about these things myself than to talk about what others did. The president told me I had done a good job and he appreciated how difficult a task it had been. As the president discussed the present status of the situation, I told him that all I've been able to do was to contain the case and assist in keeping it out of the White House. I also told him that there was a long way to go before this matter would end, and that certainly, I certainly could make no assurances that the day would not come when this matter would not start to unravel. Dean continues. What I had hoped to do in this conversation was to have the president tell me 
we had to end the matter now. Accordingly, I gave considerable thought to how I would present this situation to the President and try to make as dramatic a presentation as I could to tell him how serious I thought the situation was that the cover-up continue. I began by telling the President that there was a cancer growing on the presidency, and that if the cancer was not removed, the President himself would be killed by it. I also told him that it was important that this cancer be removed immediately because it was growing more deadly every day. Senator Baker. The central question at this point is simply put, what did the President know and when did he know it? With that question, Senator Edward Gurney followed up. He's a Republican from Florida, July 11th, 1973. When do you think the President found out about Watergate and the cover-up? Answering the question, Attorney General John Mitchell. I haven't any idea, Senator. I haven't any idea at all, because as I testified before, that if the President had found out about it, obviously he would have pursued his responsibilities in that area very vigorously. The video of Mitchell is really quite interesting because, as we now know, every word Mitchell is saying at that point is a total lie. He is lying directly to the committee. Here's Senator Irvin again. And um, you were afraid to tell the president, rather you, I won't say afraid, but you uh, preferred not to tell the president and didn't tell the president because you didn't want the president to do what you call lowering the boom. That's exactly correct. And if he had lowered the boom, why, the thing would have been exposed. I don't think there's any doubt about it. And the American people would have learned about it. They would have learned about it. And it might have affected the votes of the American people. It's quite conceivable. Senator Baker. Is the presidency so shrouded in mystique? Is there such an aura of magnificence about the presidency? Is there such an awesome responsibility for a multitude of problems and, and undertakings of this nation that the presidency, in some instances, must be spared the detail, must be spared the difficulty, of situations which in more ordinary circumstances might be considered by some at least to be frank, open uh, declarations of criminal offense. Is the presidency to be protected in that way? Is the splendor of the isolation so great that the president must be protected? And if so, in what cases? It is my opinion and my concern with respect to this particular presidency that he should not have been involved in connection with these matters that bore directly upon his election. And he should have been protected from the knowledge of them. Isn't it unfair that he's now undergoing the hostility and the suspicion of a nation in this respect with the allegations of cover-up with the lingering suspicion about what he knew? Well, that that greatly, uh, isn't that far more unfair? That's a statement that I'm not prepared to accept, Senator. I do not believe the nation feels that way, and I don't believe that anybody has come to the point point where they have one shred of evidence that he was knowledgeable of the break-in of the cover I think you and I are talking about two different things. And July 24, 1973, Senator Irvin. This is a rather remarkable letter about the tapes. If you notice, the president says he's heard the tapes, or some of them, and they sustain his position. But he says he's not going to let anybody else hear them for fear they might draw a different conclusion. With that, a frustrating year of wrangling over the tapes followed. Eleven months later, the House convened to ratify articles of impeachment. Here's House Judiciary Chair Peter Rodino, July 25, 1974. I, as the chairman, have been guided by a simple principle, the principle that the law must deal fairly with every man. This is the oldest principle of democracy. It is this simple but great principle which enables man to live justly and in decency in a free society. It is now almost 15 centuries since the Emperor Justinian, from whose name the word justice is derived, established this principle 
for the free citizens of Rome. Seven centuries have now passed since the English barons proclaimed the same principle by compelling King John at the point of a sword to accept the great doctrine of Magna Carta, the doctrine that the king was under God and the law. Almost two centuries ago, the founding fathers of the United States reaffirmed and refined this principle so that here all men are under the law and it is only the people who are sovereign. So speaks our Constitution. And it is under our Constitution that we proceed through the sole power of impeachment. I recognize the gentlelady from Texas, Ms. Jordan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ms. Jordan. Mr. Chairman, I join my colleague, Mr. Rangel, in thanking you for giving the junior members of this committee the glorious opportunity of sharing the pain of this inquiry. Earlier today, we heard the beginning of the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. We the people. It's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation, and court decision, I have finally been included in We the People. Today, I am an inquisitor, and hyperbole would not be fictional and would not overstate the solemnness that I feel right now. My faith in the Constitution is whole, it is complete, it is total. And I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. It is wrong, I suggest, it is a misreading of the Constitution for any member here to assert that for a member to vote for an article of impeachment means that that member must be convinced that the president should be removed from office. The Constitution doesn't say that. The powers relating to impeachment are an essential check in the hands of the body, the legislature, against and upon the encroachments of the executive. The division between the two branches of the legislature, the House and the Senate, assigning to the one the right to accuse and to the other the right to judge. The framers of this Constitution were very astute. They did not make the accusers and the judges and the judges the same person. We know the nature of impeachment. We've been talking about it a while now. It is chiefly designed for the president and his high ministers to somehow be called into account. It is designed to bridle the executive if he engages in excesses. It is designed as a method of national inquest into the conduct of public men. The framers confided in the Congress the power, if need be, to remove the president in order to strike a delicate balance between a president swollen with power and grown tyrannical and preservation of the independence of the executive. No one need be afraid. The North Carolina Ratification Convention, no one need be afraid that officers who commit oppression will pass with immunity. Common sense would be revolted if we engaged upon this process for petty reasons. Congress has a lot to do. Appropriations, tax reform, health insurance, campaign finance reform, housing, environmental protection, pettiness cannot be allowed to stand in the face of such overwhelming problems. So today we're not being petty. We're trying to be big because the task we have before us is a big one. This morning, in a discussion of the evidence, we are told that the evidence which purports to support the allegations of misuse of the CIA by the president is thin. We are told that that evidence is insufficient. What that recital of the evidence this morning did not include 
It's what the president did know on June the 23rd, 1972. We were further cautioned today that perhaps these proceedings ought to be delayed because certainly there would be new evidence forthcoming from the President of the United States. There has not even been an obfuscated indication that this committee would receive any additional materials from the President. The committee subpoena is outstanding, and if the President wants to supply that material, the committee sits here. The fact is that on yesterday, the American people waited with great anxiety for eight hours, not knowing whether their president would obey an order of the Supreme Court of the United States. At this point, I would like to juxtapose a few of the impeachment criteria with some of the actions the president has engaged in. Impeachment criteria, James Madison, from the Virginia Ratification Convention. If the president be connected in any suspicious manner with any person and there be grounds to believe that he will shelter him, he may be impeached. Just a story. Impeachment is, attended, is intended for occasional and extraordinary cases where a superior power acting for the whole people is put into operation to protect their rights and rescue their liberties from violations. The Carolina Ratification Convention impeachment criteria, those are impeachable who behave amiss or betray their public trust. James Madison again at the Constitutional Convention, a president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. The Constitution charges the president with the task of taking care that the laws be faithfully executed. And yet, the president has counseled his aides to commit perjury, willfully disregard the secrecy of grand jury proceedings, conceal surreptitious entry, attempt to compromise a federal judge while publicly displaying his cooperation with the processes of criminal justice. A president is impeachable if he attempts to subvert the Constitution. If the impeachment provision in the Constitution of the United States will not reach the offenses charged here, then perhaps that 18th century Constitution should be abandoned to a 20th century paper shredder. Has the president committed offenses and planned and directed and acquiesced in a, con in a course of conduct which the Constitution will not tolerate? That's the question. We know that. We know the question. We should now forthwith proceed to answer the question. It is reason and not passion which must guide our deliberations, guide our debate, and guide our decision. Congresswoman Barbara Jordan of Texas on what is impeachment? the House-Nixon impeachment hearings, about to vote on Articles of Impeachment, July 25th, 1974. You know, Jason, as we look at all of this, you know, I think one of the major stories of that period of time is what happens to one man, Howard Baker mm -hmm. of Tennessee. He goes from being essentially the Devin Nunez, I mean, yeah, the Devin Nunez and, um, and Jim Jordan of today into really, because he was going behind the scenes during the hearings, going to the White House and giving um, Nixon insight and behind the scenes you know, stuff yeah. on what was going on. And then Nixon actually gives him a strategy, much like Trump did the memo for Devin Nunez right. a while ago. Nixon gives him the strategy to bring back, to essentially set the House on, on set the Senate, excuse me, on course, on the course that Nixon, Nixon wants. But what happens is that as more and more of this comes forward, Baker, who is kind of guilty 
of, you know, abrogating his own responsibility as a senator, begins to realize things are really the trust that he thought he had in Nixon and that Nixon had in him. He realized something there is really broken, too. And he then begins to step by step figure out for himself what his own ethical moorings are. You know, if there was a film, he would be the pivotal character of of that, because that is what is really at issue today. Will there be a senator who comes to himself and realize, will there be enough senators who come to themselves and realize that something is fundamentally broken? You can like the president, you can want all the things, but something is still wrong. Yeah in in this i i think it's interesting because the the clip of of baker saying what did the president know and when did he know it is probably top three most famous lines from the entire uh nixon impeachment and and watergate investigation right up there with uh the cancer on the presidency from john dean Dean. uh and what you're saying is there's there's even more behind that than you realize it's not just that he's summing that up but also the fact that he was part of the president's party he was uh, almost one of the president's men in that regard that he was he had his back until he could no longer stand for what he was backing and that statement is when he is still supporting he actually raises that question what did the president know and when did he know it he raises that question in support of Nixon. But then he learns of this secret taping device that Nixon has installed, and he begins to see the light for himself. There is so, so, so much that I want to talk about in this. You know, the Nixon enemies list of then, the never Trumpers of today, the tapes then, the tax returns today. Stay tuned, folks. And Jason, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Thanks for having me. Today on the Janice Adams Show, my special guest for this special edition has been Jason Dole, Impeachment, the opening round. Our thanks to him and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. This show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.